this is Rise Rocket Radio, episode 26, being recorded on Thursday, 30th of January 2014. Uh, welcome to the show again. Um, got a slight different setup today. Um, I'm recording the show through my Microsoft LifeCam HD5000, uh, slightly older webcam, rather than um, my iPhone, which is, uh, yeah, well, well, we'll see how it goes. Um, in one way it's slightly easier, it just means that I don't have to um, take the stuff from my iPhone to the computer, I can directly record the thing on my computer, um, but that's kind of beside the point and uh, on with the show. Um, this is actually the Sunday show, being recorded, um, not on Sunday, uh, being recorded on Thursday. Um, come to think of it, I'm not sure that one of my Sunday shows has actually been recorded on Sunday or even been um, uploaded on Sunday. Uh, so, uh, there we have it, the, the increasingly unreliably scheduled Roy's Rocket Radio. Anyway, um, yeah, the, the reason I'm doing it today is, uh, quite frankly, I'm, <laughs> I can't sleep and I'm a bit bored, and the notes are in a state where um, I, I, I'm ready to do the show. Uh, so, here we go then. Um, so first of all, um, I finally did manage to find a place that was still playing Ender's Game, um, so I've seen that now. Um, and uh, so my initial impressions, um, well, first of all let's talk about the movie itself. It's a movie based on uh, a book that was in turn based on uh, a novella by Orson Scott Card. Um, now, I'm one of the few people who have actually read the original novella. Um, I think it, when it came out in an anthology, I think it was originally published in a, a magazine. Um, I did look up the Wikipedia entry and I believe it was Analogue in 1977. Um, I didn't read it then, but I read it in a, a later anthology. Um, most people who have read uh, Ender's Game have read the novel that came out in the 80s. Um, but 1977, that's quite a way back. Um, should I, uh, I should say that I, I did find the story, um, the novella short, long short story, uh, excellent. I found the... I, actually, I, I only skim, skim read the novel and a long time later, sometime probably in the late 90s um, because um, I didn't feel that I had to, I, I really enjoyed the short story it was compact, it was, uh, I just found it excellent and it always stuck in my mind um, and it was, uh, it was during a time that I was reading quite a lot of Orson Scott Card along with Harlan Ellison um, I was a big fan of the two of them uh, in, in the 80s. Uh, this was some 
thing of a throwover period after the uh, the period in science fiction known as the new wave. Um, <laughs> in fact, the new wave was uh, probably my favourite era of science fiction, despite the fact that I like pulp um, and I like writing pulp. Um, I actually like reading New Wave, which is slightly different and uh, might be surprising in the news, especially from someone who, who likes writing uh, more schlocky, trashy pulp. Uh, but there you are, you, you don't always write what you read or even like uh, writing what you read. Um, so, uh, let's see. Oh, the other thing about Orson Scott Card, and it's fairly well-known knowledge now, but, um, um, and I debated whether to talk about this in the um, podcast, but uh, since I had a go at Frank Miller, I might as well have a, a small go at um, Orson Scott Card. Um, he's a very good illustration of liking the works of an artist rather than the artist or the person, you know, the person themselves. Um, I find his fiction is consistently um, varies between, uh, you know, good and excellent, but his uh, politics are questionable, um, to say the least, and, and by Stating it in that way, I, I'm being extremely generous here. Um, but I think I'm going to leave it for now. Let's, let's actually get on with the uh, story itself. So, without giving too much away, uh, the basics of the story are that our hero, Ender Wiggin, yeah, that is a strange name, but portentous name, um, is a boy chosen to attend an elite military academy. Um, sorry about that spelling mistake here. I don't know why I worry about spelling mistakes in the middle of a podcast. I'm sure it doesn't really matter in the show notes anyway. Um, so yeah, Ender Wigan is a boy chosen to attend an elite military academy where cadets are trained to become the leaders in the next war between mankind and an alien, a hostile alien species called the Bugs, or, or well actually I think they're called the Buggers. Um, in the novel, as, as far as I can remember, I'm sure they're called the Buggers. Anyway, they're... Um, the race has um, already, uh, the, the buggers, sorry, have attacked um, Earth and uh, caused widespread destruction, um, a near apocalypse in fact. Um, so this is the only way that the authorities of Earth um, have figured out um, of, of countering this threat is to train these children uh, to become the new leaders in a war against them. Uh, anyway, in, in this uh, academy, he is the, 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 the young recruits are trained in strategy through uh, very complex 
um, simulation as well as some more uh, traditional military, or well, <laughs> not, not traditional in the sense of today, but future military training. Um, and, and the usual uh, barracks type uh, accommodation and um, all the unpleasantness that goes with that. You do get a real sense of pressure and uh, momentum and pace in, in the film. Um, one thing that I really enjoyed, that, that I thought was really phenomenal, and I'm not the only um, podcaster who has mentioned this, was the, um, the, the way they use uh, Zero-G, or, or the way they portray Zero-G in this film is, is astonishing. Um, it's one of the few science fiction films where we don't have any magic zero gravity generators. Um, the whole space station up in orbit where, where the recruits are trained, um, gravity is generated by placing most of the accommodation um, in this huge slowly spinning torus um, so you've got some kind of you've got centripetal force um, so if you're on the outside of the torus you're being pushed down um, and it was it wasn't the torus wasn't too small either because the smaller the thing is the faster you'd have to rotate it and then you'd have problems with um, leaning in, in on the spinward side, you'd lean forwards, and, and you know, anti-spinward sides, you'd lean backwards, and uh, you'd probably feel a bit sick if the thing was small and spinning fast. Um, so, but I, not again, not being a, a space scientist, I, I think they kind of got that bit right. Um, and, and also the combat room, which is a bit like the, uh, I don't know, what, what was it called in the X-Men? There was, in the, um, in Professor Xavier's Academy, there was, uh, oh, it was called the Danger Room, that was it, uh, on Earth, where, where they would train um, the, the young X-Men students or students at the, uh, the um, mansion uh, combat training. I'm straying straight into Marvel again, but um, uh, okay, back to the movie. Uh, yep, we are actually talking about Ender's Game 2013, just to remind myself rather than you. Um, yeah, there's an entire a massive room um, Probably at the core, I would I would say of the station where nothing is spinning, so there is no gravity at all. Uh, you're just in free fall, um, and that's where they train the young cadets to um, a bit of combat, I suppose. I suppose what they're doing is trying to get um, people used to gravity, used to thinking in more than just up and down dimensions, so, you know, because when you're, I'm assuming when there's a vast space battle, um, there isn't just up and down, there's, uh, there's all different directions, you're not just fighting on one plane. 
so I, I suppose that was the idea behind that. But it, it was so well executed. Um, yeah. If I have one minor criticism of the movie as a whole, it was that it was... Um, it was very short, or it seemed very short to me, uh, for a story that's on such an epic scale. But the thing is, I mean, the original short story wasn't that long either. But um, I think this is one example, one example of where uh, the, the film where a filmmaker could have easily made uh, the film into a three-hour epic and not been accused of bloating it out uh, like other filmmakers that I might have mentioned in the past repeatedly Peter Jackson um, so yeah I brilliant movie um, oh uh, yeah one other tiny tiny little quibble and I I'm not sure if this is fair or not but you know because I'm talking about Soroban Kingsley um, but yeah his Kiwi accent sounded South African to me, um, but I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on accents, but it, it just sounded wrong. Um, well, that was a minor thing. I mean, he, he didn't, he, he wasn't on camera over long anyway, and he played the role as he should have played it. Um, kind of made sense. Uh, yes, I enjoyed this movie a lot. Um, I enjoyed it way more than Gravity. Um, I know that almost sounds like blasphemy, but um, I, I really did. They, I don't know, it seemed the filmmakers really understood Gravity. Although, though, as I remember, there were sounds in space again um, during the battle scenes, or the simulated battle scenes. Um, my advice is to go and see it on the big screen if you still can. Um, it might be in, in some very, very local cinemas or second-run cinemas. Um, I wonder if the Prince Charles in London will be showing that sometime soon. Uh, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm tempted to go and see it again. Um, and with Amazingly, we've now talked about that movie for 14 minutes, which is kind of slightly unprecedented. So I'm going to leave that one for now. But yeah, um, great movie. Okay, and from movie brilliance, we uh, go to something quite different. Um, now, a film I... I uh, that had limited uh, had a limited release in the UK last autumn. Um, it's called Last Days on Mars. Uh, yeah, 2013, last autumn. Um, and hmm, I could kindly describe it as Outbreak with the Zombies on Mars. Um, it's hard to explain how bad this film is. It, it, it is very, very bad. Um, and it catches you off guard. It's, it's a bit like a, they're playing a game of bait and switch. Um, 
you see about a third of the way through this movie, it, it changes from an intriguing, slightly cerebral sci-fi, um, and hard sci-fi too. There's a lot of, um, well, so, as the title suggests, it, it's set on Mars. Uh, there's a bunch of astronauts there, uh, I think they're the first manned mission to Mars, they're looking for life, um, they've got one of those um, positive pressure tents that they're living in, um, there, there's the Mars manned rover thingy that I think that I've seen on Top Gear, um, or it looked very close to one that NASA really has. Um, there are two of them in the movies, the pressure suits look real, the equipment look real, um, the landscape <laughs> look like Arizona or, or the Atacama or the Gobi or something, but, but, but I gather Mars does kind of look like that anyway. But um, yeah, you, you thought you were in for um, a long, uh, well, a dry but very scientifically based movie and how wrong I was um, because with no segue, no, no transition whatsoever um, it just third of the way through intelligent sci-fi suddenly there's a, like a, a I don't know, a machete comes down and we're straight into zombie <laughs> I thought, yeah Science fiction, zombie horror. Um, I can't figure out how they put this movie together. Whether the um, what could have happened? <laughs> Were they on drugs or something? I, I, anyway, um, like I said, outbreak with zombies on Mars. Okay, um, and that's it for movies this week. And now on to TV. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sweating a bit thinking how bad that movie was, but uh, I'll let it go now. Okay, Black Sails, 2014. So what I'll do, I'll play you the trailer first and then we'll talk about it in a moment. So yeah, this is uh, a new TV series called Black Sails, and the title kind of tells you what this is going to be about. So here goes.
These come in many shapes. Okay, so that was the trailer. Um, hopefully you could hear that okay. Um, sounded a bit distorted to me. Um, but yeah, okay, possibly riding on the success of Pirates of the Caribbean and um, games like, well, especially Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag. Um, Black Sails is a new drama from Stars. Um, so. Yep. Sorry about that bit of dead air. I was just scrolling down. Um, so, yeah, yeah, being the Stars uh, production, uh, you know what to expect. It's, um, you know, it's got the, the usual softcore and elements, and it's fairly sweary and violent. Um, it's probably not viewing for the whole family. Uh, and despite being on Schlockmeister's network stars, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I, I, I really hated Spartacus, um, this actually seems quite good. Um, and the, the biggest surprise of the lot is this is something from Michael Bay, uh, produced by Michael Bay, amazingly. The guy who completely buggered up um, Transformers. Um, I've got to remember, I mean, g give him the credit. <laughs> he, he, was, uh, he, he was involved in Miami Vice back, way back in, in the day. Um, but yeah, uh, really quite enjoyable. Um, good balance between uh, Fallout Pirates of the Caribbean um, entertainment and combining that with a vague attempt at historical accuracy. Um, so this thing is from the uh, based on the golden age of piracy. Uh, I think they say in the trailer somewhere that it's about 1715 or in the Caribbean. Um, it's a very, very loose prequel to Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island in that we follow the adventures of a young um, and already very, very crooked Long John Silver. And we're in the same... Um, well, we're, we're in the Caribbean region, uh, the traditional pirate... one of the traditional piratey uh, haunts. Um, uh, there are places in it like New Providence, Port Royal, uh, etc. Um, although the film, although the thing is actually filmed in South Africa, so you'll get to meet uh, many of the characters from that time. Uh, I'm trying to think of a few like uh, Edward uh, Thatch or Teach, Blackbeard. The, the, his other name, um, Black Bart, um, and Bonnie, uh, you name it, they're, they're going to crop up in this. Um, apparently it's doing quite well in America, um, but I've no idea at all 
uh, of a UK air date yet. None whatsoever. But I'm guessing that we'll, we'll probably get it quite soon if it's doing so well. So that was uh, Black Sails 2014. Good stuff. Good stuff, Michael Bay. Well done. Um, next, Helix 2013. Um, now, remember I said that uh, last. Oh, what was it? Last Days on Mars was um, Outbreak with Zombies on Mars. Well, this is Outbreak with Zombies in the Arctic. Um, however, it isn't as terrible as Last Days on Mars. It really isn't that bad. Uh, that's kind of the best I can say, which is pretty good going, um, considering this is another sci-fi uh, network show. So if you've got time, check it out. Um, I, I don't, and I have to be far more selective with what I watch, so I won't be following the series, but not that bad. Uh, right, uh, so we've finished with the screen for now, um, and on to literature and books. Um, I finally found, I managed to dig out of the stacks of my local library. Um, a book that I've wanted to get my hands on for quite a while, but now I've got my hands on it, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not reading it fast enough. Um, I think you won't believe how many books I've started and haven't finished lately, uh, mainly due to the writing and, and just a lot of other things. But um, maybe I should actually mention the title before I start talking about this. But yeah, the book is called The Magus, 1966. It's uh, John Fowle's novel. Um, and also extremely poorly received at the time, though now cult film starring Michael Caine in 1968. Uh, Michael Caine and Anthony Quinn, I believe. Um, actually, Michael Caine didn't seem to like the film and has said this, um, but there are so many films that Michael Caine's been in. Uh, or starred in that he no longer rates um, and all I can say is what an ungrateful anyway I'll leave it at that I mean there are so many unemployed actors out there to, to complain uh, I don't know anyway so uh, the, the basics of the story of the book um, and possibly the film but um, the book is what I'm reading now so we'll talk about that is that we follow the protagonist, um, who is a miserable, directionless, middle-class teacher. Um, Oxford, I think, is it Cambridge? I know, let's just say Oxbridge. Um, graduate who becomes a teacher through no sense of really knowing what else to do with himself. Um, not an uncommon thing for many teachers. Um, anyway, he grows bored of his job, he gets bored of England. Um, I mean, he was bored before, before all this even started. Um, bored of his girlfriend. So he applies for a job um, through... I can't remember. What's it called? The... Um, 
Can you believe that? I actually had to go and get the book again. Yeah, through the British Council, he uh, finds a job. Um, well, one of the few jobs left going overseas. Uh, he finds a job teaching English in a small school, private school, on a small Greek island. Uh, the, I've got to the bit where the... I've got about, let's see, how many pages in? I'm about 100 pages in and he's... Uh, the, the island is apparently beautiful but boring. Um, there is one other rather interesting resident who I... but I haven't read far enough to have met yet. Um, but the writing style is very readable and flows well, and the character... But, yes, uh, but the problem with this is I, I find it incredibly difficult to feel any sympathy with the main character, because he seems like a, uh, a... well, a right and total git. He, he just... Um, he seems so grey. That's the best way I can describe him. He, he seems empty and hollow. But, but I think that's the point that John Fowles was going for. So we'll just have to see where this uh, goes. Um, I'm just hoping something uh, bizarre <laughs> happens to him uh, soon, just to liven things up. So that's Omegas 1966. I think it's worth a read. Um, it's a big tome of a book. But the good thing is, if you read this in a coffee shop, I'm pretty sure people think that you're intellectual. I, I, I've got a... You know what? I'm going to try that. As shallow as that sounds, I'm going to sit around somewhere um, where people can see what I'm reading and kind of hold it up and look clever. Not that that's the, you know, the only good reason for reading a book, because it isn't. But, um... Yeah, so give that a try if you can find it. Um, I only found it by accident in the library. It was buried somewhere in their database and it eventually popped up and um, the, the librarian had to go with a key and you know blow dust out of a locked cabinet to find this thing. Um, and it's not hard, it's not easy to find in the shops either. This is one for Amazon or Abe Books. Um, Okay, so we'll leave it for now. Um, I should have mentioned this was supposed to be uh, one of those major works type, works of literature that people often talk about. Um, but yeah, okay, that's it for now. That was The Magus, 1966 by John Fowles. Uh, comics. Um, Right, I read quite a few uh, trades and graphic novels this month, or this week. Um, yeah, this week, since the last podcast, which was only a few days, well, it feels like only a few days ago. Okay, I, I really am the, the nerd-walking version of the Pit of Sarlacc. I've just been digesting uh, huge chunks of um, genre media, shall we say. Um, but yeah, uh, one of the things I read was, uh, or picked up at the library, uh, which libraries seem, to, libraries seem to have an increasingly 
huge um, selection of graphic novels nowadays and um, I managed to pick up The Dead Boy Detectives 2008 uh, by Ed Brubaker um, written by Ed Brubaker and drawn by Brian Talbot and a bunch of other people um, were involved too. Uh, this is a D D DC Vertigo publication um, and it's Brubaker and Talbot's spin-off from Neil Gaiman's Sandman series. Um, something that I haven't really got into because I'm one of the few people that I don't really like the Sandman series that much. Not that Neil Gaiman isn't a good writer because he is. I've read his short stories. Um, really enjoyed his uh, Neverwhere TV series and the uh, uh, the novel time that he wrote for that too. Um, but yeah, never could never really get into uh, Sandman. But yeah, like I said, this is a spin-off from the. Uh, Sandman series, um, and we have two, uh, as the title suggests, two dead boy detectives so, who um, are trying to, uh, let's say, further their business, um, and they try and solve the mystery of some missing street children in London, I, I think. Yep. Um, What's, what, what's good about it? We'll talk about what's good about it first. First, um, I did totally believe that these two boys were dead and they were detectives. Um, it didn't seem that hard to swallow, but then maybe my nerdy brain is uh, primed uh, for that kind of thing. So, um, he's, you know, he's Ed Brubaker's preaching to the converted, I suppose, if you look at me anyway. Um, so, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, um, so I'll just talk about, oh yeah, yeah, the, um, so yeah, if you dismiss the occasionally Dick Van Dyke dialogue and the gender-bending depictions, um, well, the drawings of the very, very effeminate-looking boy detectives, uh, then it's a fair distraction. Uh, Though I wouldn't call it a particularly memorable or original adventure. Um, it, it's fairly good fun. It's a light, easy read. And um, I do like the idea of these two ghostly detectives who are stuck in childhood, so they've got all the, the same quirks that kids have, uh, which was quite entertaining. Uh, right, second, uh, Fables, 1001 Nights, 2006. So here we go again with another Bill Willingham um, Fables story from DC Vertigo again. Um, it's another fine addition to the Fables canon in the shape of this spin-off, uh, sorry, spin-off, in the shape of the spin on the Arabian Nights uh, stories. So this time it's uh, Snow rather than Shahrazad who um, 
introduce Zafarist and Potentate uh, to a series of framed tales uh, in order to spare her head and recruit him to the fight against the adversary, um, you know, who is the fable's version of uh, Sauron or the um, Emperor Palpatine. Uh, well, you get the idea. Um, so it's it's not bad, uh, but it didn't make nearly as much an impression on me as the first time I picked up Fables all those years ago. I think the franchise is just so broad now that I'm starting to get a bit um, get a bit of Fables fatigue. Um, one thing I did enjoy is I enjoyed the variation in artists uh, for each tale. Uh, that that was nice. So you weren't stuck with the same look throughout the the book. Um, yeah, if you're a Fables fan, I'm sure you would like that. So that was, uh, but again, nothing fantastic. Uh, just okay, something for the train. So that was Fables One Thousand and One Nights, Two Thousand and Six. Okay. Next we have Invincible Ultimate Collection Volume 1 2005 by Robert Kirkman and Cory Walker and this is an image publication. Uh, right now, so before Robert Kirkman hit the stratosphere with The Walking Dead, he wrote this sort of alternative Son of Superman slash coming of age type story. Um, it's entertaining and a disturbing account of this young man, uh, Mark Grayson, who calls himself Invincible, who inherits super powers from his father, Omni-Man. Um, again, I don't want to give away spoilers. Um, so I can't really tell you more than that. Uh, well, one bad thing I can tell you about it, and the, 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 this was probably the only bad thing um, about the story, um, in fact, this was the only awful thing about an otherwise fantastic comic, comic, sorry, was the abysmal Star Trek The Next Generation parody about halfway through. It's mercifully quite short, um, but it is absolutely diabolical. Um, and I've seen this thing, this sort of thing before. Um, and equally badly too, uh, by Peter David, I believe, in the Dreadstar series. Um, all I can say is enough. It isn't funny, it's just sad. Stop doing it. Stop doing parodies. Um, you know, I never did like parodies anyway in, in story writing in general. Um, it, if someone's trying to be funny, it very you know often backfires and it's not funny at all and this is one of those instances um, it's, it's the wart it's the blemish and an otherwise really good um, graphic novel 
Uh, oh. oh well, one other thing I can I can mention, uh, an honourable mention, um, is for the colourist, uh, who is often the unsung hero in comic books. So you've got the writer who writes the story, you've got the, the artist who draws all the pictures, but then you've got someone who actually colours them all in. I'm, this always surprised me when I, I started reading about comics that had guy they had a separate person to do this. Um, but yeah, um, in this case, it his name is Bill Crabtree, and he does a, a really bang-up job with the colours. Uh, they really pop right off the page. Um, it's very impressive and very noticeable in this comic book. So, um, yeah, I, I really recommend this one. Really enjoyed it. Uh, so that's the Invincible Ultimate Collection, Volume 1, 2005. Next we have Haunt of Horrors, 2008. Um, H.P. Lovecraft uh, stories um, adapted by, uh, you know, Uber Comics God, Richard Corbin. Um, so he's adapted uh, some Lovecraft stories and poems uh, and he adapted the, di the, uh, the writing and done the art as well in this collection for Max, uh, you know, Marvel's subsidiary for mature publications. Um, the art is great, um, unsurprisingly. Uh, great and very distinctive. He's got his own style of of art. Uh, very very non-generic, uh, unlike um, you know the <laughs> the usual way um, Marvel draws its uh, regular comics. Um, but yeah, like I said, you'd expect nothing less from Richard Corbin. Uh, he is the guy who, who wrote Den for Heavy Metal and Hellblazer for DC and a whole lot of other stuff. Uh, the, the writing is well adapted for a modern audience, as, as is the art, and uh, thoroughly recommended. So that's the second good one, good comic book to recommend. Um, okay. Next we have Strontium Dog, The Life and Death of Johnny Alpha, The Project, 2012. Now I've mentioned the, this in the bog, blog, in the bog. I, I honestly didn't read this in the toilet, it, it was far too good for toilet reading. Um, yeah, sorry, I meant the blog. Um, of course I did, the blog. What is wrong with me? Um, and I've probably mentioned it in other podcasts, but uh, I did a, a text string search on all the other podcast show notes, and I couldn't find mention of it anywhere, which surprises me, so I'm going to talk about it now. Um, so yeah, read this um, a few months ago in an effort to catch up with one of my favourite characters. Uh, intergalactic and occasional time-travelling bounty hunter and freedom fighter, Johnny Alpha. Um, so he actually... 
the story as far as it got um, before his return was that he uh, actually died in the last mutant uprising back in 1990, would you believe? Um, but the original creators retconned uh, Johnny back to life uh, while taking out one of my other favourite characters from the series, Farrell Jackson, which did not make me happy. Um, but despite this atrocity, the comic does a good job of both tying up some loose ends and bringing back the old feel of the original comic and especially the artwork. Um, now to give you a bit of background, um, I've actually grown up with Johnny Alpha. Uh, I, I was, as I remember, buying the very first comic of IPC's Star-Lord. Um, this was a fantastic absolutely brilliant, large format, full colour, high quality and ridiculously short-lived comic book that was snaffled up by sister publication on much cheaper uh, paper, 2000 AD. Uh, boy, I, I really miss Star-Lord. Um, and yeah, so I, I started reading him right from the very beginning, followed him through his whole fictional life and death um, so it's really good to see Johnny Alpha back in the game uh, <laughs> I've, I've written down here go Johnny go um, yeah sorry about that Chuck Berry but um, I had to use that so yeah um, if you haven't followed Johnny Alpha's uh, rebirth from the comic, this is your chance to do it with this collected work uh, from Rebellion. Um, so that's the Strontium Dog, The Life and Death of Johnny Alpha, The Project, lots of colons, um, 2012 by John Wagner and Carlos Ezekera. Uh, and that's available from Rebellion, who now own 2000 AD. God, you know, I've got so many little errors in my notes. I don't know why I make notes so detailed for a show, come to think of it. I mean, I've looked at um, other podcast show notes. Um, little bits from the BBC as well, you know, people who know what they're doing and their notes aren't even half as detailed as this. Maybe it's just because I'm nervous and I need to see what I'm going to talk about in front of me. Um, but I've just realised that I'm way off the reservation now, I can't remember. Back to the show notes. So yeah, give that a go if you want to catch up with Johnny. So that's about it for the podcast. Um, coming up to... Oh, we've been going for 47 minutes. Which means we must have started somewhere around one-ish. I'll work that out later. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. Um, there'll be another podcast fairly soon. Um, I can even tell you what I propose that it will be about. Ah, yeah, it, right. So the next podcast is supposedly about Doctor Who, 
But now this is such a big topic, I'm not sure, I, I'm a bit intimidated as to whether to attempt it in the next podcast or, or work on it for a few weeks um, as other podcasts, as, as I do other podcasts, just work on it in the background because it's such a big topic. Um, I've actually got my hands over my mouth in fear now of, of, of what I've bitten, uh, but I've bitten off a bit more than I can chew. Uh, so we'll have to see how that goes. Oh, man, I want to put bag over my Doctor Who. Um, but it might be timely to do that before Peter Cabaldi takes over the mantle of the new Doctor. That, that might be a quite a good thing to do. Um, what I was going to do was uh, maybe a look over the whole the series as, as a whole and when I started watching it and what Doctor Who meant to me. Um, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, so that was the show. Um, that was the show. That was Roy's Rocket Radio, episode 26, recorded on the 30th of January 2014. It's Thursday and it's very, very early in the morning. And I'm very tired now, so I'm going to stop. So, thank you for listening. Goodbye, and see you next time. Bye.